Chapter Seventy, Part Four of *The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire*, Volume Six. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. *The History of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire*, Volume Six, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Seventy: Final Settlement of the Ecclesiastical State, Part Four. The royal prerogative of coining money, which had been exercised near three hundred years by the Senate, was first resumed by Martin V, and his image and superscription introduced the series of the papal medals. Of his two immediate successors, Eugenius IV was the last pope expelled by the tumults of the Roman people, and Nicholas V, the last who was importuned by the presence of a Roman emperor. One. The conflict of Eugenius with the fathers of Basil, and the weight or apprehension of a new excise, emboldened and provoked the Romans to usurp the temporal government of the city. They rose in arms, elected seven governors of the Republic, and a constable of the capital, imprisoned the Pope's nephew, besieged his person in the palace, and shot volleys of arrows into his bark as he escaped down the Tiber in the habit of a monk but he still possessed in the castle of St. Angelo a faithful garrison and a train of artillery. Their batteries incessantly thundered on the city, and a bullet more dexterously pointed broke down the barricade of the bridge, and scattered with a single shot the heroes of the Republic. Their constancy was exhausted by a rebellion of five months. Under the tyranny of the Ghibelline nobles, the wisest patriots regretted the dominion of the Church, and their repentance was unanimous and effectual. The troops of St. Peter again occupied the capital, the magistrates departed to their homes, the most guilty were executed or exiled, and the legate, at the head of two thousand foot and four thousand horse, was saluted as the father of the city. The synods of Ferrara and Florence, the fear or resentment of Eugenius, prolonged his absence. He was received by a submissive people, but the pontiff understood from the acclamations of his triumphal entry that to secure their loyalty and his own repose he must grant without delay the abolition of the odious excise. 2. Rome was restored, adorned, and enlightened by the peaceful reign of Nicholas V. In the midst of these laudable occupations the Pope was alarmed by the approach of Frederick III of Austria, though his fears could not be justified by the character or the power of the imperial candidate. After drawing his military force to the metropolis, and imposing the best security of oaths and treaties, Nicholas received with a smiling countenance the faithful advocate and vassal of the church. So tame were the times, so feeble was the Austrian, that the pomp of his coronation was accomplished with order and harmony but the superfluous honour was so disgraceful to an independent nation that his successors have excused themselves from the toilsome pilgrimage to the Vatican, and rest their imperial title on the choice of the electors of Germany. A citizen has remarked with pride and pleasure that the king of the Romans, after passing with a slight salute to the cardinals and prelates who met him at the gate, distinguished the dress and person of the senator of Rome, and in this last farewell the pageants of the empire and the republic were clasped in a friendly embrace. 
According to the laws of Rome, her first magistrate was required to be a doctor of laws, an alien, of a place at least forty miles from the city, with whose inhabitants he must not be connected in the third canonical degree of blood or alliance. The election was annual. A severe scrutiny was instituted into the conduct of the departing senator, nor could he be recalled to the same office till after the expiration of two years. A liberal salary of three thousand florins was assigned for his expense and reward, and his public appearance represented the majesty of the Republic. His robes were of gold brocade or crimson velvet, or in the summer season of a lighter silk. He bore in his hand an ivory sceptre, the sound of trumpets announced his approach, and his solemn steps were preceded at least by four lictors or attendants, whose red wands were enveloped with bands or streamers of the golden colour or livery of the city. His oath in the capital proclaims his right and duty to observe and assert the laws, to control the proud, to protect the poor, and to exercise justice and mercy within the extent of his jurisdiction. In these useful functions he was assisted by three learned strangers, the two collaterals and the judge of criminal appeals. Their frequent trials of robberies, rapes, and murders are attested by the laws, and the weakness of these laws connives at the licentiousness of private feuds and armed associations for mutual defence. But the senator was confined to the administration of justice. The capital, the treasury, and the government of the city and its territory were entrusted to the three conservators, who were changed four times in each year. The militia of the thirteen regions assembled under the banners of their respective chiefs, or caporioni, and the first of these was distinguished by the name and dignity of the prior. The popular legislature consisted of the secret and the common councils of the Romans. The former was composed of the magistrates and their immediate predecessors, with some fiscal and legal officers, and three classes of thirteen, twenty-six, and forty councillors, amounting in the whole to about one hundred and twenty persons. In the common council all male citizens had a right to vote, and the value of their privilege was enhanced by the care with which any foreigners were prevented from usurping the title and character of Romans. The tumult of a democracy was checked by wise and jealous precautions. Except the magistrates, none could propose a question. None were permitted to speak except from an open pulpit or tribunal. All disorderly acclamations were suppressed. The sense of the majority was decided by a secret ballot, and their decrees were promulgated in the venerable name of the Roman Senate and People. It would not be easy to assign a period in which this theory of government has been reduced to accurate and constant practice, since the establishment of order has been gradually connected with the decay of liberty. But in the year 1580 the ancient statutes were collected, methodized in three books, and adapted to present use under the pontificate and with the approbation of Gregory the Thirteenth. This civil and criminal code is the modern law of the city, and if the popular assemblies have been abolished, a foreign senator with the three conservators still resides in the palace of the capital. The policy of the Caesars has been repeated by the popes, and the bishop of Rome affected to maintain the form of a republic, while he reigned with the absolute powers of a temporal as well as a spiritual monarch. It is an obvious truth that the times must be suited to extraordinary characters, 
and that the genius of Cromwell or Retz might now expire in obscurity. The political enthusiasm of Rienzi had exalted him to a throne. The same enthusiasm in the next century conducted his imitator to the gallows. The birth of Stephen Porcaro was noble, his reputation spotless, his tongue was armed with eloquence, his mind was enlightened with learning, and he aspired, beyond the aim of vulgar ambition, to free his country and immortalize his name. The dominion of priests is most odious to a liberal spirit. Every scruple was removed by the recent knowledge of the fable and forgery of Constantine's donation. Petrarch was now the oracle of the Italians, and as often as Porcaro revolved the ode which describes the patriot and hero of Rome, he applied to himself the visions of the prophetic bard. His first trial of the popular feelings was at the funeral of Eugenius IV. In an elaborate speech he called the Romans to liberty and arms, and they listened with apparent pleasure, till Porcaro was interrupted and answered by a grave advocate who pleaded for the church and state. By every law the seditious orator was guilty of treason, but the benevolence of the new pontiff, who viewed his character with pity and esteem, attempted by an honourable office to convert the patriot into a friend. The inflexible Roman returned from Anagni with an increase of reputation and zeal, and on the first opportunity, the games of the Place Navona, he tried to inflame the casual dispute of some boys and mechanics into a general rising of the people. Yet the humane Nicholas was still averse to accept the forfeit of his life, and the traitor was removed from the scene of temptation to Bologna, with a liberal allowance for his support, and the easy obligation of presenting himself each day before the governor of the city. But Porcaro had learned from the younger Brutus that with tyrants no faith or gratitude should be observed. The exile declaimed against the arbitrary sentence. A party and a conspiracy were gradually formed. His nephew, a daring youth, assembled a band of volunteers, and, on the appointed evening, a feast was prepared at his house for the friends of the Republic. Their leader, who had escaped from Bologna, appeared among them in a robe of purple and gold. His voice, his countenance, his gestures bespoke the man who had devoted his life or death to the glorious cause. In a studied oration he expiated on the motives and the means of their enterprise, the name and liberties of Rome, the sloth and pride of their ecclesiastical tyrants, the active or passive consent of their fellow-citizens, three hundred soldiers and four hundred exiles long exercised in arms or in wrongs, the license of revenge to edge their swords, and a million of ducats to reward their victory. It would be easy, he said, on the next day, the festival of the Epiphany, to seize the Pope and his cardinals before the doors or at the altar of St. Peter's, to lead them in chains under the walls of St. Angelo, to extort by the threat of their instant death a surrender of the castle, to ascend the vacant capital, to ring the alarm-bell, and to restore in a popular assembly the ancient Republic of Rome. While he triumphed, he was already betrayed. The senator, with a strong guard, invested the house. The nephew of Porcaro cut his way through the crowd, but the unfortunate Stephen was drawn from a chest, lamenting that his enemies had anticipated by three hours the execution of his design. 
After such manifest and repeated guilt, even the mercy of Nicholas was silent. Porcaro and nine of his accomplices were hanged without the benefit of the sacraments, and amidst the fears and invectives of the papal court, the Romans pitied and almost applauded these martyrs of their country. But their applause was mute, their pity ineffectual, their liberty forever extinct, and if they have since risen in a vacancy of the throne or a scarcity of bread, such accidental tumults may be found in the bosom of the most abject servitude. But the independence of the nobles, which was fomented by discord, survived the freedom of the commons, which must be founded in union. A privilege of rapine and oppression was long maintained by the barons of Rome. Their houses were a fortress and a sanctuary, and the ferocious train of banditti and criminals whom they protected from the law repaid the hospitality with the service of their swords and daggers. The private interest of the pontiffs, or their nephews, sometimes involved them in these domestic feuds. Under the reign of Sixtus IV, Rome was distracted by the battles and sieges of the rival houses. After the conflagration of his palace, the proper notary Colonna was tortured and beheaded, and Savelli, his captive friend, was murdered on the spot for refusing to join in the acclamations of the victorious Ursini. But the popes no longer trembled in the Vatican. They had strength to command, if they had resolution to claim, the obedience of their subjects, and the strangers who observed these partial disorders admired the easy taxes and wise administration of the ecclesiastical state. The spiritual thunders of the Vatican depend on the force of opinion, and if that opinion be supplanted by reason or passion, the sound may idly waste itself in the air, and the helpless priest is exposed to the brutal violence of a noble or a plebeian adversary. But after their return from Avignon, the keys of St. Peter were guarded by the sword of St. Paul. Rome was commanded by an impregnable citadel. The use of cannon is a powerful engine against popular seditions. A regular force of cavalry and infantry was enlisted under the banners of the Pope. His ample revenues supplied the resources of war, and, from the extent of his domain, he could bring down on a rebellious city an army of hostile neighbours and loyal subjects. Since the union of the duchies of Ferrara and Urbino, the ecclesiastical state extends from the Mediterranean to the Adriatic, and from the confines of Naples to the banks of the Po, and as early as the sixteenth century the greater part of that spacious and fruitful country acknowledged the lawful claims and temporal sovereignty of the Roman pontiffs. Their claims were readily deduced from the genuine or fabulous donations of the darker ages, the successive steps of their final settlement would engage us too far in the transactions of Italy and even of Europe. The crimes of Alexander the Sixth, the martial operations of Julius the Second, and the liberal policy of Leo the Tenth, a theme which has been adorned by the pens of the noblest historians of the times. In the first period of their conquests, till the expedition of Charles the Eighth the popes might successfully wrestle with the adjacent princes and states, whose military force was equal or inferior to their own. But as soon as the monarchs of France, Germany, and Spain contended with gigantic arms for the dominion of Italy, they supplied with art the deficiency of strength, 
and concealed in a labyrinth of wars and treaties their aspiring views, and the immortal hope of chasing the barbarians beyond the Alps. The nice balance of the Vatican was often subverted by the soldiers of the North and West, who were united under the standard of Charles V. The feeble and fluctuating policy of Clement VII exposed his person and dominions to the conqueror, and Rome was abandoned seven months to a lawless army, more cruel and rapacious than the Goths and Vandals. After this severe lesson, the popes contracted their ambition, which was almost satisfied, resumed the character of a common parent, and abstained from all offensive hostilities, except in a hasty quarrel when the vicar of Christ and the Turkish sultan were armed at the same time against the kingdom of Naples. The French and Germans at length withdrew from the field of battle. Milan, Naples, Sicily, Sardinia, and the sea-coast of Tuscany were firmly possessed by the Spaniards, and it became their interest to maintain the peace and dependence of Italy, which continued almost without disturbance from the middle of the sixteenth to the opening of the eighteenth century. The Vatican was swayed and protected by the religious policy of the Catholic king, his prejudice and interest disposed him in every dispute to support the prince against the people, and instead of the encouragement, the aid, and the asylum which they obtained from the adjacent states, the friends of liberty, or the enemies of law, were enclosed on all sides within the iron circle of despotism. The long habits of obedience and education subdued the turbulent spirits of the nobles and commons of Rome, the barons forgot the arms and factions of their ancestors, and insensibly became the servants of luxury and government. Instead of maintaining a crowd of tenants and followers, the produce of their estates was consumed in the private expenses which multiply the pleasures and diminish the power of the lord. The Colonna and Orsini vied with each other in the decoration of their palaces and chapels, and their antique splendour was rivalled or surpassed, by the sudden opulence of the papal families. In Rome the voice of freedom and discord is no longer heard, and instead of the foaming torrent, a smooth and stagnant lake reflects the image of idleness and servitude. A Christian, a philosopher, and a patriot will be equally scandalized by the temporal kingdom of the clergy, and the local majesty of Rome, the remembrance of her consuls and triumph, may seem to embitter the sense and aggravate the shame of her slavery. If we calmly weigh the merits and defects of the ecclesiastical government, it may be praised in its present state as a mild, decent, and tranquil system, exempt from the dangers of a minority, the sallies of youth, the expenses of luxury, and the calamities of war, but these advantages are overbalanced by a frequent, perhaps a septennial, election of a sovereign who is seldom a native of the country, the reign of a young statesman of threescore, in the decline of his life and abilities, without hope to accomplish and without children to inherit the labours of his transitory reign. The successful candidate is drawn from the church and even the convent from the mode of education and life the most adverse to reason, humanity, and freedom. In the trammels of servile faith he has learned to believe because it is absurd, to revere all that is contemptible, and to despise whatever might deserve the esteem of a rational being, to punish error as a crime, 
to reward mortification and celibacy as the first of virtues, to place the saints of the calendar above the heroes of Rome and the sages of Athens, and to consider the missal or the crucifix as more useful instruments than the plough or the loom. In the office of nuncio or the rank of cardinal he may acquire some knowledge of the world, but the primitive stain will adhere to his mind and manners. From study and experience he may suspect the mystery of his profession, but the sacerdotal artist will imbibe some portion of the bigotry which he inculcates. The genius of Sixtus V burst from the gloom of a Franciscan cloister. In a reign of five years he exterminated the outlaws and banditti, abolished the profane sanctuaries of Rome, formed a naval and military force, restored and emulated the monuments of antiquity, and after a liberal use and large increase of the revenue, left five millions of crowns in the castle of St. Angelo. But his justice was sullied with cruelty, his activity was prompted by the ambition of conquest, after his decease the abuses revived, the treasure was dissipated, he entailed on posterity thirty-five new taxes and the venality of offices, and after his death his statue was demolished by an ungrateful or an injured people. The wild and original character of Sixtus V stands alone in the series of the pontiffs. The maxims and effects of their temporal government may be collected from the positive and comparative view of the arts and philosophy, the agriculture and trade, the wealth and population of the ecclesiastical state. For myself, it is my wish to depart in charity with all mankind, nor am I willing in these last moments to offend even the Pope and clergy of Rome. End of chapter 70